This episode of Voices in AI is brought to you by NVIDIA. As you no doubt know, deep learning, which is of course the fastest growing segment in artificial intelligence, was really only a theory until leading researchers around the world started using NVIDIA's GPUs. Now entire industries are being redefined from healthcare to retail. NVIDIA celebrates the innovators that are turning moonshots into real results, including those featured in this Voices in AI episode. This is Voices in AI, brought to you by GigaOM and Byron Reese. Today, our guest is Brian Catanzaro. He is the head of applied AI research at NVIDIA. He has a BS in computer science and Russian from BYU, an MS in electrical engineering from BYU, and a PhD in both electrical engineering and computer science from UC Berkeley. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thanks. It's great to be here. So let's start off with my favorite opening question. What is artificial intelligence? <laughs> it's such a great question. Uh, so I like to think about artificial intelligence as uh, making tools that can perform intellectual work. Um, and hopefully those are useful tools that can help people uh, be more productive in the things that they need to do. Um, there, there's a lot of different ways of thinking about artificial intelligence and maybe the way that I'm talking about it is a little bit more narrow. Um, but I think it's also a little bit more connected with why artificial intelligence is changing so many uh, of so many companies and and uh, so many things about the way that we do things in the world economy today is because it it actually is a practical thing um, that helps people be more productive in their work. And you know we've we've been able to um, create industrialized societies with a lot of mechanization that help people do physical work. Artificial intelligence is making tools that help people do intellectual work. So I asked you what artificial intelligence is, and you said it's doing intellectual work. That's sort of using the word to define it, isn't it? Like, what is that? What is intelligence? Yeah. Um, wow. I'm not a philosopher, so uh, so I actually don't have like a. Super... Well, let me let me try a different a different tack. Is it? artificial in the sense that it isn't really intelligent and it's just pretending to be or is it really smart is it actually intelligent and we just call it artificial because we built it so i really liked um this idea from yuval harari um that i read a while back where he said uh there's the difference between intelligence and sentience where intelligence is more about the capacity to do things um, and sentience is more about being self-aware and being able to reason in the way that that human beings reason. My belief is that we're building increasingly intelligent systems that can perform what I would call intellectual work, things about understanding data, um, understanding the world around us that we can measure with sensors like video cameras or audio, or that we can write down in text um, or record uh, in some form. And you know, the, the process of interpreting that data and making decisions about what it means that's, that's intellectual work, and that's uh, something that we can create machines to be uh, more and more intelligent at. Um, I think the sort of definitions of artificial intelligence that um, move more towards consciousness and, and sentience, I think we're a lot farther away from that as a community. Um, you know, I, there are definitely people that are super excited about making generally intelligent machines. But um, I think that's, that's farther away, and, and I don't know how to define what general intelligence is well enough uh, to start working on that problem myself. So um, my work focuses mostly on practical things, uh, helping computers understand data and make decisions about it. Fair enough. 
Um, and I'll only ask you one more question along those lines. And I guess even down in narrow AI, though, like if, if I have a sprinkler that comes on when my grass gets dry, um, it's responding to its environment. Is that an AI? Um, I'd say it's a, a very small form of AI. You could have a very smart sprinkler that was better than any person at figuring out when the grass needed to be watered. It could take into account all sorts of sensor data. It could take into account historical information. It might actually be more intelligent at figuring out how to irrigate than a human would be. Um, and, and that's a very narrow form of intelligence, but it's a useful one. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I, I do think that could be considered um, a form of intelligence. Now, it's not like philosophizing about like the nature of irrigation and, you know, it's harm on the planet and or the history of um, human interventions on the world or anything like that. So it's, it's very narrow, but it's, but it's useful and, you know, it is intelligent in its own way. Fair enough. And, and I do want to talk about AGI in a little while. Just I, I have some, some, some questions around, um, well, we'll come to that in just a moment. But, but just in the narrow AI world, just in your world of using data and computers to solve problems, if somebody said, Brian, what is the state of the art? Where are we at uh, in AI? Is this the beginning and we haven't, we, you ain't seen nothing yet? Or are we really doing a lot of cool things and we're well under our way to kind of mastering that world? I think we're just at the beginning. Uh, we've seen so much progress over the past few years. It's been really quite astonishing, uh, the kind of progress we've seen in many different domains, uh, including, uh, you know, it kind of all started out with image recognition and speech recognition, but it's gone a long way from there. Um, and a lot of the products that we interact with on a daily basis over the internet are using AI and they're providing value to us. You know, they provide our social media feeds, they provide um, uh, recommendations and maps, they provide, you know, conversational interfaces like Siri or Android uh, Assistant, you know, all those all those things are powered by AI and they, they are definitely providing value, uh, but we're still just at the beginning. There are so many things we don't know yet how to do and so many underexplored problems to look at. Uh, so, so I believe we'll continue to see applications of AI come up in new places for uh, quite a while to come. So if I took a little statuette of a, of a, of a falcon and I, uh, let's say it's a foot tall, and I put it, I showed it to you, and then I showed you some photographs and said, spot the falcon. And half the time it's kind of sticking halfway behind a tree, half the time it's underwater. One time it's got peanut butter smeared on it. Person can do that, right, uh, really well, but computers are far away from that. Uh, is that. Is that an example of us being like really good at transfer learning? We're used to knowing what things with peanut butter on them look like? Or, <laughs> or what is it that people are doing that computers are having a hard time to do there? Well, I believe that people uh, have evolved over a very long period of time to operate on planet Earth with the sensors that we have, right? And so we have a lot of built-in knowledge um, that tells us how to process the sensors that, that we, we have and, and kind of models the world. Um, a lot of it's instinctual and, and some of it's learned. You know, I, I have children and uh, young, young children, like a year old or so, they spend an awful lot of time just repetitively probing the world to see how it's going to react when they do things like pushing on a string or, or, or a ball. 
Um, and they do it over and over again because I think they're trying to build up their models about, um, about the world. So we have actually very sophisticated models of the world that maybe we, we don't, um, we, we kind of take for granted sometimes because everyone sort of seems to get them so easily. Uh, it's not something that you have to learn in school. But these models are actually quite useful um, and they're more sophisticated than and more general than the models that we currently can build with today's AI technology. Um, so to your question about um, transfer learning, you know, I feel like we're really good at transfer learning within the domain of things that our eyes can see on planet Earth. Um, there are probably a lot of situations where uh, an AI would be better at transfer learning um, might actually have fewer assumptions baked in about how the world is structured, how objects look, you know, what kind of composition of objects is actually permissible. Um, and, and so, um, so, so I, I guess I'm just trying to say we shouldn't take, we, we shouldn't forget that we come with a lot of context um, that, that's uh, kind of instinctual and we use that uh, and it's, it's very sophisticated. Do you, do you take from that that we ought to learn how to embody an AI and just let it wander around the world, bumping into things and poking at them and, and all of that. Is that, is that what you're saying or something? How do we overcome that? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not personally working on trying to build artificial general intelligence, but um, it, it will be interesting for those people that are working on it to see what kind of childhood is necessary for an AI. I do think that childhood is a really important part of developing human intelligence. Um, and play is a really important part of developing human intelligence because it helps us build and calibrate these models of how the world works, which then we apply to all sorts of things like your question of the Falcon statue. Um, so will computers need things like that? Um, it's, it's possible, we'll, we'll, we'll have to see. I think one of the things that's different about computers is that um, they're a lot better at transmitting information identically. So. Um, it may be the kind of thing that we can train once and then just use repeatedly as opposed to people where the, the process of replicating a, a person is, is uh, time-consuming and, and uh, not exact. But that, that problem of, of the transfer learning problem isn't really an AGI problem at all, though, right? Like, we've taught a computer to recognize a cat by giving it a gazillion images of a cat. But if we want to teach it how to recognize a bird, we have to start over, don't we? Uh, I, don't, I don't think we generally start over. I, I think most of the time if people wanted to create a new classifier, they would use transfer learning from an existing classifier that had been trained on a wide variety of different object types. Um, it's actually not very hard to do that, and people do that successfully all the time. So um, at least for image recognition, I think transfer learning uh, works pretty well. Uh, for other kinds of domains, it can be a little bit more challenging, but, but at least for image recognition, we've been able to find a set of higher level features that are very useful in discriminating between all sorts of different kinds of objects, even objects that, that we haven't seen before. And what about audio? Because like, I'm talking to you now and now I'm snapping my fingers. You don't have any trouble like continuing to hear me, but a computer trips over that. What do you think is going on in, in people's minds? Why are we good at that, do you think? And, and I know to, back to your point about we, we live on Earth. That's one of those Earth things we do. But I mean, yeah. as a general rule, how do we how do we teach that to a computer? Is that the same as teaching it to see something, to, as to teach it to hear something? Um, 
I think it's similar. Um, you know, the best uh, speech recognition accuracies come from systems that have been trained on huge amounts of data. And there does seem to be a relationship that the more data we can train a model on, the better the accuracy gets. Um, we, we haven't seen the end of that yet. Um, and so, so I'm, I'm pretty excited about the prospects of being able to teach computers to continually understand audio uh, better and better. However, I, I wanted to point out like humans, like this is kind of our superpower, right? Conversation and, you know, communication is, is like, you know, you watch, you watch birds flying in a flock and the birds can all change directions instantaneously and the whole flock just moves. And you're like, how do they do that and not run into each other? Well, they have, they have like a lot of built in machinery that allows them to flock together. Humans have a lot of built in machinery for conversation and for understanding um, spoken language. And, you know, the, the pathways for speaking and the pathways for hearing evolve together. So they're really well matched. Um, you know, with computers trying to understand audio, we haven't gotten to that point yet. I remember uh, some of the experiments that um, I've done in the past with speech recognition, uh, that the recognition performance was very sensitive to compression artifacts that were actually not audible to humans. So we, we could actually take, um, you know, like, like a recording like this one and recompress it in a way that sounded identical to a person and observe a measurable difference in the recognition accuracy of our model. And that was a little disconcerting because we're trying to train the model to be invariant to all the things that humans are invariant to. But it's actually quite hard to do that. Uh, we, we certainly haven't achieved that yet. And so uh, often our, our models are still what we would call overfitting, where they're, they're um, paying attention to a lot of details that um, help it perform the task that we're asking it to perform, but they're not actually helpful to solving the fundamental task that we're trying to perform. And we're continually trying to improve our understanding of the tasks that we're solving so that we can avoid this, but we still got more work to do. So, you know, my, my standard question when I, when I'm put in front of the chat bot or, uh, you know, a, uh, one of the devices that uh, sits on everybody's desktop, and I can't say them out loud because they'll start talking to me right now. But um, the, the question I always ask is, what is bigger, a nickel or the sun? And to date, nothing's ever been able to answer that question. Um, you know, it doesn't know how sun is spelled, whose sun, oh, the sun, oh, nickel, oh, that's actually a coin, all of that. <clears throat> what all do we have to get good at for the computer to answer that question? Like where, where, run me down the litany of all the things we can't do that, that or that we're not doing well yet. It causes no system I've ever tried to answer that correctly. Well, I think one, one of the things is that we're, we're typically not building chat systems to answer uh, trivia questions just like that. I think if we were building a special purpose trivia system for questions like that, we probably could answer it. You know, IBM Watson did pretty well on Jeopardy um, because it was trained to answer questions like that. And so I think we, we definitely have the databases, the knowledge bases to answer questions like that. The problem is that that kind of a question is really outside of the domain of most of the personal assistants that um, are being built as products today. Because honestly, like trivia bots are fun, but they're, they're not as useful as like a thing that can set a timer or check the weather or play a song. And so those are mostly the things that those, those assistants are focused on. Fair enough, but um, I, I would differ. You can go to um, Wolfram Alpha and say, what's bigger, the Statue of Liberty or the Empire State Building? And it'll answer that. 
and you can ask, you know, Amazon's product that same question and it'll answer it. Um, is that because those are like legit questions and my question's not legit? Or is it because we're, we haven't taught systems to disintermediate very well and so they don't really know what I mean when I say son? Yeah, or, I, think, I think that's probably the, pro the issue. I mean, so there's a language modeling. So there's a language modeling problem. When you say what's better, a nickel or the sun, uh, the sun can mean so many different things. Like you were saying, nickel actually can be spelled a couple different ways and has a couple different meanings. And um, so uh, dealing with ambiguities like that is a little bit hard. I think when, when you ask that question to me, I sort of categorize this as a trivia question. And so I'm able to... Um, disambiguate all of those things and like look up the answer in my little knowledge base in my head and and you know answer your question but uh, I actually don't think that particular question is impossible to solve I just think it's um, it's just not been a focus to try to solve stuff like that and and that's why they're not good so AIs have done a really good job playing games right you know um, deep blue you know you know uh, uh, Watson AlphaGo and all of all of that um, and I guess those are like constraint in environments that with a fixed set of rules and it's easy to see, understand who wins and what a point is and all of that. What is going to be the next thing that's a watershed event that happens? Like now they can out bluff people in poker. Uh, you know, what's something that's going to be in a year or two years, five years down the road that one day it wasn't like that in the universe and the next day, it was. And the next day, the best Go player in the world was a machine. Yeah. Um, well, the thing that's on my mind for that right now is, is autonomous vehicles. I think um, it's going to change the world forever to unchain people from the driver's seat. Um, it's going to give people hugely increased mobility. You know, um, I have relatives that uh, their doctors have asked them to stop driving cars because it's no longer safe for them to be doing that. And restricts their ability to get around the world and that frustrates them so you know it's going to change it's going to change the way that we all live it's going to change the real estate market because we won't have to park our cars in the same places that we're going to um it's uh it's going to change uh some things about the economy because there's going to be new delivery mechanisms that will become uh economically viable um and so i think uh, intelligence that can help uh, robots essentially drive around the roads. That's going to be that, that's the next thing that I'm most excited about. That I think is really going to change everything. Well, we'll, we'll come to that in just a minute. But I, I'm actually asking, like, I mean, we have self-driving cars, and we'll and on an evolutionary basis, they'll get a little better, a little better, a little better. You'll see them more and more, and then someday there'll be even more of them, and then there'll be this and this and this and this. It's not that surprise moment though of AlphaGo just beat Lisa Dole and Go. And I'm wondering if there's something else like that, that it's this binary milestone that we can all kind of keep our eye open for. Yeah, I don't know. Like, as far as we have self-driving cars already, I mean, I don't have a self-driving car that could say, for example, let me uh, sit in it at nighttime, go to sleep and wake up and it brought me to Disneyland. I would like that kind of self-driving car, but that car doesn't exist yet. I think, um, you know, self-driving trucks that, that can go across country um, carrying stuff, that's, that's going to radically change the way that we distribute things. Um, so, so I do think that uh, we have the, as you said, sort of the, we're on the evolutionary path of self-driving cars, but there's going to be some 
discrete moments when people actually start using them to do new things that will feel pretty significant. Um, as far as like games and stuff and computers being better at, ga at games than people, it's, it's funny because um, I feel like Silicon Valley has uh, sometimes a very linear idea of intelligence that, you know, one person is smarter than another person, maybe because of an SAT score or, or an IQ test or something. Um, and then they, they use that, um, th that sort of linearity of intelligence to, um, where some people feel threatened by artificial intelligence because they kind of extrapolate that artificial intelligence is getting smarter and smarter along this linear scale. And, and that's um, going to lead to all sorts of surprising things like, you know, like Lisa Dahl losing, losing to go, but like much, much on a much bigger scale for all of us. You know, I, f I feel kind of the opposite that like intelligence is such a multi-dimensional thing. You know, the fact that a computer is better at go than I am doesn't really change my life very much because I'm not very good at go. I don't, I don't play go. I don't consider go to be an important part of my intelligence. Same with chess. You know, when, when Gary Kasparov lost to deep blue, that didn't threaten my intelligence. I, I, um, and sort of defining the way that I work and, and how I add value to the world and what things um, make me happy on a lot of other axes besides, you know, can I play chess or can I play Go? And so I think this, this speaks to this idea that intelligence really uh, is very multifaceted. Um, there's, there's a lot of different kinds. There's probably thousands or millions of different kinds of intelligence. And it's not very linearizable. And... Um, because of that, I, I feel like, you know, as we watch artificial intelligence develop, you know, we're, we're going to see increasingly more intelligent machines, but they're going to be increasingly more intelligent in some very narrow domains. Like this is a better go playing robot than me, or this is a better car driver than me. Um, and that's going to be incredibly useful. Um, but it's, uh, it, it, it's not going to change the way that I think about myself or about my work or about what makes me happy because I feel like there are so many more dimensions of intelligence um, that are going to remain uh, sort of the province of humans that that's going to take a very long time if ever for uh, artificial intelligence to become better at all of them than us. Because as I said, I don't believe that intelligence is a, a linear linearizable thing. And you said you weren't a philosopher. <laughs> well, so I guess, I guess, I guess the thing that's interesting to people is there was a time when nothing, when information couldn't travel faster than a horse. And that was, uh, and then the train came along and information could travel. And that's why in like the old Westerns, if they ever made it on the train, that was it. And they were out of range. Nothing traveled faster than the train. And then, you know, we had a telegraph and all of a sudden, that was like this amazing thing that information could travel at the speed of light. And then one time they ran these cables under the ocean and somebody in England could talk to somebody in, um, in the United States instantly. And, and so each one of them, I think, is just a, 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 an opportunity to pause and reflect and to mark a milestone and to think about what it all means. And so I think that's why, you know, a computer just beat the, these awesome poker players that learned to bluff. That, that's just like, you just kind of want to think about it. Um, yeah. So let's talk about jobs for a moment, because you've, you've been talking around that for just a second. So just to set the question up, I mean, generally speaking, there are three views of what automation and artificial intelligence are going to do to jobs. One of them uh, reflects kind of what you were saying, is that 
there are going to be uh, a certain group of workers who don't, uh, who are considered low skill, and there's going to be automation that takes these low skilled jobs, and that there's going to be a sizable part of the population that's locked out of the labor market, and it's kind of like the permanent Great Depression over and over and over, forever. Then there's another view that says, no, 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 you don't understand. There's going to be an inflection point where they can do every single thing. They're going to be a better conductor and a better painter and a better novelist and a better everything than us. And don't, don't think that you've got something a machine can't do. Clearly, that isn't your viewpoint from what you've said. And then there's a third viewpoint that says, well, no, in the past, even when we had these transformative technologies like electricity and mechanization, people take those technologies and they use them to increase their own productivity and therefore their own incomes. And, and you never have unemployment go up because of them, because people just take it and make a new job with it. So of those three, or maybe a fourth one I didn't cover, where do you find yourself? Well, I feel like I'm closer in spirit to number three. Uh, I'm optimistic. So I, um, I believe that the primary way that we should expect economic growth in the future is by increased productivity. You know, if you buy a house or buy some stock and you want to sell it 20 or 30 years from now, who's going to buy it and with what money? And why do you expect the price to go up? Um, I think the answer to that question should be uh, the, the people in the future should have more money than us because they're more productive. And that's why we should expect, you know, our, our world economy to continue growing is because, because we find more productivity. So I actually feel like there's, th this is actually necessary, like world productivity growth has been slowing um, for the past several decades. And I feel like artificial intelligence is our way out of this trap where, um, you know, we, we've been unable to figure out how to grow our economy because our productivity hasn't been improving. So, so I actually feel like this is, this is an, a necessary thing for all of us is to figure out how to improve productivity. And I think AI is the way that we're going to do that for the next um, several decades. Now, um, the one thing that I disagreed with in your third statement was this, this idea that unemployment would never go up. I think nothing is ever that simple. Um, I actually am quite concerned about job displacement um, in the short term. I think there will be people that suffer. And in fact, I think to a certain extent, this is already happening. Um, you know, the election of Donald Trump kind of was uh, eye-opener to me that there really exists a lot of people that feel that they've been left behind by the economy. And, you know, they, they come to very different conclusions about the world than I might. Um, I think that uh, it's possible that as we continue to digitize our society and AI becomes a lever that uh, some people become very good at using to increase their productivity, that we're going to see increased inequality. Um, and that worries me. Um, and so I, I do think that the, you know, the, the primary challenges that I'm worried about for our society um, with the rise of AI um, have to do more with um, making sure that we give people purpose and meaning in their life um, that maybe doesn't necessarily revolve around, um, you know, punching out a time card and, and uh, showing up to work at eight o'clock in the morning every day. Um, I, I want to believe that that future exists. Um, you know, there are a lot of people right now that are brilliant people that have a lot that they could be contributing in many different ways, intellectually, artistically, um, that are currently uh, not given that opportunity because they uh, maybe grew up in a place that didn't have 
um, the right opportunities for them to get the right education so that they could um, apply their, their skills in that way. And many of them are doing jobs that I think, um, you know, don't, don't allow them to use their full potential. And so I'm hoping that um, we, as we automate uh, many of those jobs, that, that um, more people will be able to find, uh, find work that provides meaning and purpose to them and allows them to actually use their talents and make the world a better place. But I acknowledge that it's not going to be an easy transition. I, I do think that um, that there's going to be a lot of implications for how our government works and how our economy works. And, and I hope that we can figure out a way to, to help um, defray some of the pain uh, that will happen during this transition. Well, let, let me let me. So you talked about two things. You mentioned income inequality as a thing, and then you mentioned. Uh, but then you also said, I think we're going to have unemployment from these technologies. So separating those for a minute and just looking at the unemployment one for a minute, uh, you say things are never that simple, but with the exception of the Great Depression, which nobody believes was caused by technology, uh, unemployment has been between 5 and 10% in this country for 250 years. And it only moves between 5 and 10% because of the business cycle. But there, there aren't counterexamples. I mean, didn't electricity like disrupt just imagine if your job was uh, you had animals uh, that, uh, that performed physical labor, you know, they pulled and pushed and all that, and somebody made the steam engine. It's like that was disruptive. Uh, but even when we had that, we had electrification of industry. Uh, we adopted steam power. We went from 5% to 85% of our power being generated by steam in just 22 years. Um, and even when you had that kind of disruption, you still didn't have any, any increases in unemployment. So I'm curious, what is the mechanism in your mind by which this time is different? Um, well, I think that's a good point that you raise, and I actually um, haven't studied all of those other transitions that our society has gone through, and um, I'd like to believe that it's not different. I mean, that, that would be a great story if, if um, we could all come to agreement that um, uh, that we won't see an increase that we won't see increased unemployment uh, from AI. I think the the reason why I'm a little bit worried is that I think this transition in some fields will happen quickly, um, maybe more quickly than some of the transitions in the past did. Um, and just because, as I was saying, AI is easier to replicate than uh, some other technologies like electrification of a country. You know, it, it takes a lot of time to build out physical um, um, infrastructure that, that can actually deliver that. Whereas I think for a lot of AI applications, that infrastructure will be cheaper and quicker to build. Um, and so the velocity of the change might be, might be faster in that. That could lead to a little bit more shock. Um, but um, it's, it's an interesting point you raise. And, and I, I certainly hope that uh, we can find a way through this transition that is uh, less painful than I'm worried it could be. So do you worry about um, misuse of AI? Because, and, and look, I'm the first, I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist on, on all of this. And I know that every time we have some new technology come along, people are always uh, looking at, 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 at the bad cases. And you take something like the internet, and the internet has overwhelmingly been a force for good. And it connects people in like a profound way. And I mean, there's a million things. And, and yeah, I mean, some people abuse it. And so on net, all technology, I believe, almost all technology on net is used for good because I think on net, people on average uh, are more inclined to do, to, to build than to destroy. 
That being said, do you worry about nefarious uses of AI specifically in warfare? Yeah, I think that there definitely are going to be some scary um, killer robots that armies make. Um, armies love to build machinery that kills things, um, and AI will help them do that. Um, and that, that will be scary. Um, I think, you know, it, it's interesting, like, where is the real threat going to come from? I, I, sometimes I feel like the, the threat of malevolent AI being deployed against people is, is going to be more subtle than that. It's going to be more about like things that you can do after compromising cyber systems of some adversary um, and things that you can do to manipulate them using AI. Um, you know, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about, um, you know, Russian involvement in the 2016 election in the U.S. And that, that wasn't about, like, sending evil killer robots. It was more about, like, changing people's opinions or, or attempting to change their opinions. Um, and AI will give um, entities tools to do that on a scale that maybe we haven't seen before. So, so I think it, there, there may be, like, nefarious uses of AI that are um, more subtle and, and harder to, to see than like a full frontal assault from a movie with evil killer robots. Um, and so I do worry about all those things, but, but I also share your optimism. I think um, we, we, as a, you know, we humans, we, we make lots of mistakes and you know, we, we shouldn't give ourselves too easy of a time here. Um, we, we should learn from those mistakes, but we also do a lot of things well. And uh, we, we have used technologies in the past to make the world better. And I hope AI will do so as well. You know, Pedro Domingo wrote a book called The Master Algorithm, where he says, you know, there, there are all of these different tools and techniques that we use in artificial intelligence. And he, he surmises that there, there is probably a grand parent algorithm, a master algorithm that, uh, uh, that can solve any problem, any range of problems. Uh, does that seem possible to you uh, and if, or likely? Or do you have any thoughts on that? I think it's a little bit far away, uh, at least from AI as it's practiced today. Right now, the, the practical on the ground experience of researchers trying to use AI to do something new is filled with a lot of pain, suffering, blood, sweat, and tears, and perseverance um, if, if they are to succeed. Uh, and I see that in my lab every day. You know, most of the researchers, uh, and I, I have brilliant researchers in my lab that are working very hard, and they're doing amazing work, and most of the things they try fail. Um, and they have to keep trying. Um, and I think that's generally the case right now um, across all the people that are working on AI. Um, the thing that's different is we've actually started to see some big successes along with all of those uh, more frustrating uh, everyday occurrences. Um, so, so I do think that we're, we're making progress, but I think having a master algorithm that's kind of push button that can solve any problem you pose to it, uh, that, that's something that's hard for me to conceive of with today's state of artificial intelligence. So our AI, of course, you know, it's doubtful we'll have another AI winter. And because, like you said, it's kind of delivering the goods. And there have been three things that have happened that made that possible. One of them uh, is better hardware. And obviously, uh, you're, you're part of that world. The second thing is better algorithms. You know, we've, we've learned to do things a lot smarter. And the third thing is we have more data because we're able to collect it and store it and, and whatnot. So assuming you think uh, the hardware is 
the biggest of the driving factors. What would you think has been the, the bigger the bigger events? Is it that we have quad, so much more data or so much better algorithms? Um, I think the most important thing is more data. Um, I think you know the algorithms that we're using in AI right now are more or less clever variations of algorithms that have been around for decades and used to not work. When I was a PhD student um, uh, and I was studying AI, all the smart people told me, don't work with deep learning because it doesn't work. Use this, use this other algorithm called support vector machines, which at the time that was the, that was the hope that that was going to be the master algorithm. And, um, and so I stayed away from deep learning back then uh, because at the time it didn't work. I think now we have so much more data uh, and deep learning models have been so successful at taking advantage of that data um, that, that we've been able to make a lot of progress. Um, so, I, I, would character, I wouldn't characterize deep learning as a master algorithm though because deep learning is, is more, it's like a fuzzy cloud of things that have some relationships to each other, but um, you know, actually finding a space inside that fuzzy cloud to solve a particular problem requires a lot of human ingenuity. Is there a phrase like it's such a it's such a jargon loaded industry now? Are, are there any of the words like uh, uh, that that you just find like rub you the wrong way because they don't mean anything and people use them as if they do? Do you have anything like that? Uh, <laughs> well, everybody has um, pet peeves. I would I would say that my biggest pet peeve right now is the word neuromorphic. Um, I have like almost an allergic reaction every time I hear that word, um, mostly because I don't think we know what neurons are or what they do. And I think modeling neurons um, in a way that actually could lead to brain simulations that actually worked um, is, is a very long project that's we're you know, decades away from solving. Now, I could be wrong on that. I'm always waiting for somebody to prove me wrong, right? Strong opinions weekly held. But so far, neuromorphic is a word that um, that 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 I, I I just have an allergic reaction to every time. So, tell me about what you do. You are the head of applied AI research at Nvidia. So, what does your day look like? What does your team work on? What's like your biggest pain, you know, challenge right now, and all of that? Yeah. Well, so Nvidia sells uh, GPUs, which have powered most of the deep learning revolution. So pretty much all of the work that's going on with deep learning across the entire world right now runs on NVIDIA GPUs. Um, and that's been very exciting for NVIDIA and exciting for me to be involved in building that. Um, the next step I think for NVIDIA uh, is to figure out how to use AI to change the way that it does its own work. And NVIDIA is incentivized to do this because we see the value that AI is bringing to our customers. Um, you know, our GPU sales have been going up quite a bit because uh, we're we're providing a lot of value to uh, to uh, everyone else who's trying to use AI for their own problems. So, the, kind of the next step is to figure out how to use AI for Nvidia's problems directly. Um, you know, Andrew Ng, uh, who I used to work with, has this great quote that AI is the new electricity, and I believe that. I think that we're going to see AI applied in many different ways to many different kinds of problems. And my job at NVIDIA is to figure out how to do that here. Uh, and so that's, that's what my team focuses on. We have 
projects going on in quite a few different domains, ranging from uh, graphics to audio and text and, uh, and others. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to change the way that everything in NVIDIA happens from chip design to video games um, and everything in between. Um, so as far as my my day-to-day -day work goes, you know, I, I lead this team, so that means um, I spend a lot of time talking with people on the team about the work that they're doing and trying to make sure that they have the right resources, uh, data, the right hardware, um, the right ideas, the right connections so that they can make progress um, on problems that they're trying to solve. And then, you know, when we have prototypes that we've built showing how to apply AI to a particular problem, then, you know, I work with people around the company to show them the promise of AI uh, applied to problems that they care about. Um, I think one of the things that's really exciting to me about this mission is that, you know, we're really trying to change NVIDIA's work kind of at the core of the company. So rather than, you know, working on applied AI that could maybe help uh, some peripheral part of the company that, you know, maybe, maybe could be nice if we did that. We're actually trying to solve like very fundamental problems that the company faces um, with AI and uh, hopefully we'll be able to change the way that, that the company does business and transform NVIDIA into an AI company and not just a company that makes hardware for AI. And so you are the head of the applied AI research. Is there a pure AI research group as well? Yes, there is. Okay. And, and so you, everything you do, you have like an internal customer for already. That's the idea. Yeah. Uh, to me, the difference between fundamental research and applied research is more a question of emphasis on, you know, what, what's the fundamental goal of your work. If the goal is academic novelty or, um, you know, that, that would be, that would be fundamental research. Our goal is we think about applications all the time and we don't work on problems unless we have a clear application that we're trying to, trying to build that, that could use a solution. And in most cases, do other groups come to you and say, hey, we really want to understand, we really want to, we had this problem we really want to solve, can you help us? Or are you, or is, is the science nascent enough that you go and say, hey, did you know we could actually solve this problem for you? You know, it kind of works all of those ways. Um, that We have a list of projects that people around the company have proposed to us. Um, and we also have a list of projects that we ourselves think are interesting to look at. And then uh, there's also a few projects that, um, you know, my management tells me, I really want you to look at this problem. I think it's really important. So we get, we get kind of input from, from all directions and then kind of prioritize and, and go after the ones we think are, are most feasible uh, and most important. And do you find a talent shortage? Like, do you have trouble? I mean, yeah. you're in video on the one hand, but on the other hand, you know, it's AI. Our, the entire field, uh, no matter what company you work at, the entire field uh, has a shortage uh, of qualified scientists that can do AI research. Um, and that's despite the fact that the amount of people jumping into AI is increasing every year. I mean, if you go to any of the academic AI conferences, you'll see how much energy and how much excitement and how many people that are there that didn't used to be there. So that's really wonderful to see. But even with all of that growth and change, uh, it is a, a big problem um, for the industry. So to all of your listeners that are trying to figure out what to do next, come work on AI. We have lots of fun problems to work on and not nearly enough people doing it.
So tell me, I know a lot of your projects I'm sure you can't talk about, but tell me something you have done um, that, that you can talk about and like what the goal was and what you were able to achieve. Like give us a, give us a success story. Okay, well, um, I'll, I'll give you one that's relevant to the last question that you asked, which is you know, about how, how to find talent for AI. Um, we've actually built a system that can match candidates to job recommend or to job openings um, at NVIDIA, and um, basically it it can predict uh, how well we think a particular candidate is a fit for a particular job, uh, and that that system is actually performing pretty well. So we're trialing it with um, uh, hiring managers around the company to figure out if it can help them be more efficient in their work as they search for people to come join NVIDIA. And that looks like a game, to, isn't it? You have, I assume you have like a, a pool of resumes or LinkedIn profiles or whatever, and then you have a pool of successful employees and you have a pool of job descriptions and you're trying to say, how could I pull from that big pool based on these job descriptions and, and actually pick the people that did well in the end? And that's right. So that, that's like a game, right? You have points and- That's and, right. <laughs> okay. Would you yeah. ever pr productize anything or is everything you're doing just for your own use? Um, we focus primarily on building prototypes, not products in my team. I think that's what the research uh, is about. Um, so, uh, you know, we've built, we, once we build a prototype that shows promise for a particular problem, then we work with other people in the company to get that actually deployed. And they would be the, the people that think about like business strategy about whether something should be productized or not. Um, but you, I, in theory, might turn, uh, you know, NVIDIA Resume Pro into something people could use. That wouldn't be possibly. against, yeah. Possibly. I, you know, we also, in, NVIDIA also works with a lot of other companies, um, you know, as we enable companies in many different parts of the, of the economy to apply AI to their problems. Um, we, we work with them to help them do that. And so it might make more sense for us, for example, to deliver this prototype to some of our partners that are um, in a position to deliver products like this more directly. Um, and then, you know, they, they could figure out like how to um, enlarge its capabilities abilities and make it more general to, to try to solve like bigger problems that address their whole market and not just like one company's needs. Um, and, and that, that seems like, you know, partnering with, with other companies is good for NVIDIA because um, it helps us grow AI, uh, which is something we want to do because uh, as AI grows, we grow. Um, and, and it's also, it kind of makes more sense uh, given that NVIDIA, um, I, I, I personally, I think, um, some of the things that we're working on, it just doesn't really make sense. It's not really in NVIDIA's DNA to productize them directly because it, it's just not sort of the, the business model that the company has. So you're probably, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, kind of the right to know legislation that in, in Europe. So the idea that if, if an AI makes a decision uh, about you, you have a right to know why it made that decision. And, you know, AI researchers are like, oh, it's not necessarily that easy, you know, to do that. And so in your case, your, your AI would actually be subject to that. It would say, why did you pick that person over this person for that job? Is that an answerable question? 
Yeah, well, so first of all, I, I don't think that this system, like I, I can't imagine using it to actually make hiring decisions. I think that that would be irresponsible. Like AI, you know, this, this system makes mistakes. Um, what we're trying to do is improve productivity, right? So if, if instead of having to sort through 200 resumes to find three that I want to talk to, if I can look at 10 instead, then that's a pretty good improvement in my productivity, but I'm still going to be involved as a hiring manager to figure out who is the right fit for my jobs. Um, so, so but an AI excluded 190 people from that position. It didn't, it, it didn't exclude them. It sorted them. And then the person decided how to allocate their time in a search. Which well, I I think what, let's look at the problem more abstractly. What do you think just in general about the idea that every decision an AI makes should be and is and can be explained. I think it's a little bit uh, a little bit utopian. Um, certainly, I don't have the ability to explain all of the decisions that I make, and people generally are not very good at explaining their decisions, which is why there are like significant legal battles going on about factual things that people see in different ways and remember in different ways. Um, so, so like asking a person to explain their intent uh, is actually a very complicated thing and, and we're, not, we're not actually very good at it. Um, so, I, so I don't actually think that we're going to be able to enforce that AI is able to explain all of its decisions in a way that makes sense to humans. Um, I do think that um, there are things that we can do to make the results of these systems more interpretable. Um, for example, on uh, the resume job description matching system that I mentioned earlier, we've built a prototype that can highlight parts of the resume that um, were most interesting to the model, both both in a positive and in a negative sense. Um, so, so that's a that's like a, a baby step towards interpretability. So that if you were to pull up that job description and, and a particular person, uh, and you could you could see how they matched, uh, that, that might explain to you what the model was thinking, or not thinking, but what the what the model was paying attention to as it made uh, made a ranking. You know, it's funny, because uh, when you hear reasons why people like exclude a resume, I remember one person said, I'm not going to hire him, he has the same name as somebody else on the team, the same first name, and that'd just be too confusing. And uh, somebody else I remember said um, that, the, that the applicant was uh, a vegan and the place they liked to order pizza from didn't have a vegan alternative that the team liked to order from. And so it's funny because people use, I mean, those are, those are anecdotal, of course, but they, people use all kinds of other things when sure. they're thinking about it. That, yeah, uh, and that's, that's actually one of the reasons why I'm excited about this, this particular system is that I feel like we should be able to construct it in a way that actually has fewer biases than people do. Because we know that people harbor all sorts of biases, um, which, you know, we have employment laws that like guide us to stay away from, you know, making decisions based on protected classes. I don't know if veganism is a protected class, but like it's verging on that, right? Like if you're making hiring decisions based on people's personal lifestyle choices, that's suspect, right? You could get in trouble for that. Um, our models, we should be able to train them to be more dispassionate than any human could be. So we're running out of time here. Uh, let's close up by, um, do you consume science fiction? Do you watch movies or read books or any of that? And if so, is there any 
any of it that you look at, especially any that portrays artificial intelligence, like uh, Ex Machina or Her or Westworld or any of that stuff, that you look at and you're like, wow, that's really interesting, or that could happen, or that's fascinating, or, or anything like that? Um, I do consume science fiction. Uh, I love science fiction. Um, I don't actually feel like current science fiction matches my understanding of AI very well. Um, Ex Machina, for example, that was a that was a fun movie. I enjoyed watching that movie, but I felt from a scientific point of view, it was it just wasn't very interesting. I feel like you know people people get like people like I was talking about like our inbuilt model, our built-in models of the world. One of the things that humans over thousands of years have had drilled into our heads is that there's somebody out to get you, and we have like a large part of our brain that's worrying all the time, like who's going to come kill me tonight right? Who's going to take away my job? Who's going to take my food? Who's going to burn down my house? There's all these things that we worry about. And, you know, so a lot of the depictions of AI in science fiction inflame that part of the brain that is worrying about the future rather than actually speak to the technology and its, um, its potential. You know, I think probably the, 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 the part of science fiction that has had the most impact on my thoughts about AI is Isaac Asimov's um, Three Laws those, you know, I, I think are, are pretty classic and I hope that some of them can be adapted um, to the kinds of, pro of problems that we're trying to solve with AI to make AI safe um, and, and make, it, make it possible for people to feel confident that they're interacting with AI and not worry about it. But I feel like most of science fiction is actually, or especially movies, uh, maybe books, books can be a little bit more intellectual and maybe a little bit more interesting, but especially movies, you know, it just sells more movies to make people afraid than it does to show people kind of mundane existence where um, AI is helping people live better lives. It's, it's just not nearly as a compelling of a movie. And so, so, I, so I, I don't actually feel like popular culture treatment of AI is very realistic. All right. Well, on that note, I say we, we wrap up. Uh, I want to thank you for a great hour and uh, we covered a lot of ground and I appreciate you traveling all that way with me. <laughs> it was fun. I'd also like to take a moment and thank the sponsor of this episode, NVIDIA. NVIDIA is, after all, the inventor of the GPU, which has ignited the modern AI era. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might want to check out their AI podcast called AI Podcast. It's available online through iTunes, Google Play Music, and SoundCloud.